It is my privilege to be among you, brothers and sisters, and it's a joy to worship with you. It was powerful worship this morning, and I'm glad to hear lots of voices. Thank you for mingling around, so now I do not know where to look. You know, where are my friends here, but you're all my friends, and you uh, obeyed, so to speak, last time when we ask you to mingle and sit in other places, so that's good. I hope you not just uh, uh, found another seat, but also found another neighbor that you could talk to. Maybe you haven't spoken to him or to her for a long time. We continue our study of First Thessalonians. What a wonderful book. What an awesome book that teaches us so much, teaches my heart so much about God, about my responsibilities. Last time we talked about every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. And I hope you adapt in this and this. The word of God changes you that you start thinking about yourself, that you are a minister, not just the laity, not just the people who are here at the podium serving, but you are serving in a very tangible way and God is using you. And this morning we are going to a passage that reminds us of bullet points. Bullet points passage when we see command after command just in a short staccato speaking to us. Chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Let's read it and let's pray. Now, I want to warn you that these are short. Verse 16 is the shortest in the Greek Bible, shortest verse, but they are not easy. They're not easy to comprehend. They're not easy to obey. And yet we're able to do it through Christ Jesus. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Father, we need your help to understand the word. We need your power of the spirit to convict our hearts so that we could obey. We need the power of the spirit to change our heart, to accept the words and to put it in practice. And I pray that you would change us Bless us, Lord, as we study this text, that we come out out here with a desire to worship you with these attitudes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The title of the sermon, The Attitudes of Worship, Attitudes of Worship. You know, we live in a very self-observed, self-promoting society. Sometimes we call it narcissism. The idea of narcissism is that people promote themselves and get in love with themselves. And you look around, you know, you see people promoting themselves right and left. Just a sheer statistic, 93,000 photos uploaded of selfies every day to social media. 93,000 of selfies. That's a lot of selfies. Now, not, I'm not against selfies. I take them occasionally. And uh, it's not the first notion that people want to, you know, bring themselves up and promote themselves up. You know, Greek uh, god, so to speak, in the Greek mythology, Narcissus, he was 
the first who saw his reflection in the water and got in love with that. He was so in love with the image what reflected in the pool of water that he started promoting himself and loving himself and praising himself. And we're not that far. It's not just uh, this society where we live. It was always like that. People love themselves. We love ourselves. We wish the best for ourselves. We pity ourselves. And unfortunately, this happens when the human race fall into sin and we become sick with the sin of selfishness. Sinners are placing self above God. Sinners are impressed with self-image. Sinners are in love with humanity far more than with God. And in reflection, we become worshipers of self rather than the worshipers of God. This self-worship does not make us happy, does not make us happier, does not make us more gracious, does not make us more appreciative. On the contrary, selfishness would always, always make you more miserable, more weaker, and less grateful. What is the cure from selfish worship? When you're worshiping self or your own idols, when you're promoting yourself, and the answer is very simple, worship God. Worship God. Worshiping God is an exercise of selflessness because you cannot worship God in worshiping self. You have to give one over another. When we truly worship God, we can experience the true joy through fellowship with God by giving Him thanks, which He deserves. And when we set our mind on God and take our minds off ourselves, we see that He's good and beautiful and worthy. Now, we've read John chapter 4 about Samaritan woman, that she was, had a question, where to worship, where to worship. And when we come to the idea of worship, we often think that we know how to worship. Like her, she had a problem not to how to worship, but where to worship. She assumed that she knows how to worship. She only needed to place the proper place. But Jesus corrected her and said, well, look, God is seeking worshipers, not in place, but in the spirit and the truth. He seeks worshipers who understand who God is in every place at all times. Bible says that God searches the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose heart are fully committed on him. God is looking for worshipers that value him above all. Worship is when we value God above all things. It's when you said and behold, like we sang the first song, behold our God, behold our God. You know, it's interesting that it's a lot easier to speak about worship than to worship God. We could hear sermons after sermon and read Bible verses, but to worship with full commitment, this is what God looking for. Fully engage in worship. Are you doing so? And the question is, are you doing this at all times? Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. 
It's easier to hear these verses, repeat and memorize, but it's hard to make a joyful noise for the Lord, to be fully committed to make joyful noise to God. I've heard a lot of noises in front of TV screen when our favorite team is winning. I heard a lot of noises at the arena when our favorite basketball team is scoring and winning. And we make noise and we make a lot of noise and we praise. But when we come to God, all of a sudden we're silent. Make noise to God. Worship God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. God is looking for worshipers fully engaged who value them, him above all. Now, how do we do that? How do we worship God? These verses explain it as very simply. Very simply, you have to have a right attitude of worship. And it's very simple. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. It's not complicated. You see, Bible does not require huge crowds to make worship really big. Bible does not require huge bands, which are helpful, but it's not necessary. Not a good acoustic that would promote worship. Not a lot of instrument, not a choir. It is a heart set on God with the proper attitudes. So the main point from these verses is this. Because you know who God is, because you know who God is, you and I must continually worship him with an attitude of joy, prayer, and gratitude. Let's talk about worship just a little bit more. Bible says here in verse 18 that this worship that God requires This attitude that God requires, it is the will of God. It is the command of God. It's not just a suggestion for everyone. God designed you to worship, and you will worship someone, self or someone else, but God designed you everything in the universe that you would worship Him. And He commands you to do this. And there's nothing ambiguous about these commands. These are commands, all three of them. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. These are commands. Now, these are commands. It says that, verse 18, that all of those commands are will of God. And they're difficult. They're difficult. If you think about this, these are commands that God requires from every Christian. It's not just from the congregation here or there. It's not just from the church. It is from you individually, he requires, that you would do these things. John Stott suggested that these commands for corporate worship, I disagree. I think this is for individual, everyone. As we come, we worship God and these attitudes. All three, rejoice, pray, and give thanks, are present tense verse, verbs. Present tense imperatives. Today and every day and every moment. Besides that, all three have a qualifier. Notice that it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. And the qualifier in Greek language stands first. Emphasis on the timing. If we would properly translate that, it would be saying this, always rejoice. Ceaseless pray. And in everything give thanks. To obey these commands, meaning 
that you always have to worship God with these attitudes. But that would be one problem. Another problem with this, that it's that attitudes. That these commands is not just commanding our do it, something that we could do. But he commands the attitude of the heart. How can he command the attitude? That's my question. How do you command the attitude to rejoice? I mean, many of us probably tried with our kids when they are whining or grumbling or they are so upset, and you would just say, well, stop crying, stop whining, just be happy, I told you so. That never works. Have you tried this? That never works. Why? You cannot command the feelings. Feelings are not commendable by commands. But Paul says, well, look, the attitude are, must be in place. And the reason why it doesn't work, because we think wrongly about this. When we think about the attitudes of worship, the attitudes of the heart, Bible always speak not about attitudes as emotions, but always as a mindset. Always as a mindset. How can we command the attitudes? Easy. Because the attitudes always talking about the planning, consciously planning, thinking in your mind. Like even online dictionary says attitudes is a set, settled way of thinking. That's what attitude is. We always think about the, the, the reaction of the, of the heart, how we feel. But the attitude of the heart is the way how you think, thoughtful planning. In Philippians 3.15, we have this verse, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And in everything you have different, different attitude. If, if in anything you have different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. When Bible speaks about attitude, uses the word of your thinking process, not about your feeling. In fact, scientists will tell you there is no place of feeling in your heart. There's no separate place of, of emotions. Your emotions happening in your brain. Your emotions happening in your mind, in your heart. It is the reaction and your thought process, how you process the emotions that actually makes you feel. So to change the feelings, you have to change your thinking. Philippians 2.5, very familiar in verse for us. Do, not, not, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than ourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this, what? Attitude in yourself. It's interesting that in Greek, there's no word attitude there. It just says, have this in yourself. What this? Have this thinking in yourself that you have to put people above and yourself low, which is also in Christ Jesus. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourself to prayer, keep an alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Everything that you feel, it's the reaction of your thought process. Thought process. Now, this is how he commands. He commands your thought process. You have to start thinking differently so you could feel differently. If I would say that you won a lottery this morning, however gloomy you were, you will smile. Guarantee. Why? Because you might have some feelings before, but the thought process come, on, come in and say, well, yes, I have, I'm a winner. It makes you feel better right away. What happens? 
you change your thinking. But this impossibility or this difficulties of this command that it has to be happening always, it has to be happening in our heart, is, is empowered by this phrase because I'm asking myself question, how in the world I could do these things? How in the world I could rejoice always? How in the world I could pray without stopping? Is it even possible? How can I give thanks in everything? Is it beyond my abilities? Is this on the level of those things that Jesus said, therefore you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and you feel like, how can I do that? Love your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. How can I do that? But the help comes in in verse 18, that this command, this will of God, that is very challenging, is possible because we're in Christ Jesus. You see this phrase? This phrase is everything. This is the salvation for for us. This is the the great hope for us that we could do this because we are in Christ Jesus. We could obey these commands. This is not just try harder. You know, rejoice when you can. Pray whenever you remember. And sometimes give thanks. No, it says every time, all the time. How is it possible? Because you are in Christ Jesus. Now, when you were baptized... In Christ Jesus, something very interesting happened. When we baptize, not in the water like we baptize, this is a post-factum thing when we just realize that you've been baptized in Christ Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit took you out of wherever you were, running against God and away from God, and baptized you and placed you in Jesus, what happened? You were immersed with Christ And this word baptizo, when we're baptized in Christ, means far more than just dipped and got wet. Dipped. You become part of it. It's like when you take a a cucumber and put it in the vinegar, and after a while, this cucumber becomes a pickle. This is what happens to us. He took us, something very different, and dipped us in Jesus, and we became different because we start reflecting his nature. And so that is why, as Jesus was able to go through life and and have a perfect attitude in every situation, when you were dipped in Jesus, when you were baptized in Christ, you become reflecting his nature more and more. Jesus' attitude was never bad. He was perfect, had perfect attitude in every situation. He was never become defensive or discouraged. His goal was always to please Father rather than to achieve his own agenda. His mind, in the, in the midst of tri- trials, Jesus was patient. In, in the midst of suffering, he was hopeful. In the midst of blessing, he was humble. Even in the midst of ridicule, abuse, and hostility, he made no threats and did not retaliate. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who justly judges. So there's hope for us. When we go to these commands, hope that you are baptized in Jesus Christ and start reflecting his nature. Now, we won't do it perfectly, for sure, but these are commands for us that we should embrace them. Now, these commands, as I said, there's attitudes of worship. Let's take one attitude at a time. Attitude of worship. In fact, your worship flows from this attitude. You, you see, if, if, 
it is impossible if you're joyless, prayerless, and uh, no gratitude whatsoever, grumbling. You can't worship. You can go through the motions. You could sing some songs. You could just present the, your, your body here, but you're not worshiping. So my question to you, how are you worshiping? And the determinative factor would be, do you have these attitudes of the heart? Have you changed your mind into these attitudes that you must be joyful and must be prayerful and must be grateful? The attitude of joy, Paul says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Joy is the product of deliberate focusing on Christ. It's not so much as a feeling in the beginning. It is your mindset set on Christ. And Christians are not doing well in this. We're not doing well at rejoicing always, aren't we? Like one Mason said, the Christians who remain in sadness and depression really breaks a commandment. In some direction or another, he mistrusts God, his power, providence, and forgiveness. You know, a Christian joy is, does not spring from his circumstances, but from the blessings that are his because he is in Christ. Now, as we take these attitudes, I want to explore two questions for each one of them. Number one, what does that mean to be always joyful? And number two, how can we improve? How, we, how can we become habitually joyful? So, what does it mean? First of all, be joyful does not, mean, does not mean that you have to avoid reality. You know, when we think about joyful Christian or rejoice in always, it doesn't mean that you're skipping through the life and every, every, every day you're smiling and all is fine just by denying reality. You know, it, it's just, it's impossible, first of all, but then you have problems in life. Like a couple of days ago, me and my wife visited a funeral of uh, my friend's dad died. And, and we were not, so to speak, laughing there. We were not just skipping through the life. We sat down and we grieved. It was a tough time. And we sang sad songs. When we're telling, talking about joy, we're not talking about denying the reality that we have evil and sickness and sadness in life. In fact, if you ask, if you see people that they're always happy, always fine, he asks, brother, how are you doing? I'm always good. You know, always praising the Lord. I don't trust those people. They're not, they're not really living in reality. They're living in just wonderland. You have problems. And if that would not be true, Jesus would not obey this commandment. I mean, the, the fact that Jesus was said is proven that that's not what he's talking about. The, another, in English verse, actually, comparing to that, there are two verses talking about the weeping. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in English Bible. talks about that Jesus had been sad. Hebrews 5.17 says, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. You see, joy does not come in opposition to sorrow. It does not. Because Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Somehow, this joy doesn't mean avoiding reality of sorrow. 
of pain. Besides, Paul is addressing Thessalonians when they were in suffering from persecution. The same thing comes from James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testimony of your faith produces endurance. What? Rejoice in trial. It's painful. Rejoice in weeping. How is it possible? Romans 5, 3, Paul says, and not only in this, but we'll also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings our about perseverance. The joy doesn't mean avoiding reality of bad things happening to you. But the joy is me means that in the time of suffering, and even in time of suffering, you're able to focus your eyes on Jesus and have the joy in him. Because it is product of your deliberate focusing on Christ and his promising. In other words, when we are losing joy, it is always because we have shifted our focus from Christ and something else. That is it. When we su- subside Christ with, with uh, substitute Christ with something else, our joy would be shallow because those things are shallow. Joy is the product of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is always focusing on Jesus. Always. When you walk in the Spirit, you will be joyful. Why? Because Spirit always leads you to Christ. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're able to see Christ and never lose the reality of eternal joy. Hebrews says, Paul had that joy, held that joy was a distinctive and abiding characteristic of Christian. But Paul was no blind optimist. He well knew that it, in leading the Thessalonians to faith in Christ, he had shared with them a heritage of sufferings. But he also knew that sufferings for the Lord was not incompatible with rejoicing in Christ. This is how we display a true joy in Christ, that even in suffering, this is how people look at us and say, well, how in the world you don't lose hope and you still rejoice in, in the reality of Christ? What is that that you have? Now, how can we change into that person who is habitually joyful? How can we do that? Like constantly, all the time, rejoicing. First of all, I think you need to watch for joy killers. There are joy killers that just kill your joy in Christ. They're just shift your mindset from Christ on something else. Something like complaining will kill your joy. If you complain long enough, you will focus on the things and the trouble in yourself, and you will have no joy because you shifted from Christ, who is all-sufficient. If you procrastinate in reading the Scripture and pray and, and giving good and, and, uh, to other people, you will feel guilty, not joyful. If you gossip, trying to put yourself up, trying to put people down would never work for joy. Seeking approval of men, this is overrated. You know, if I would seek approval of men, I would feel more happier. No, seek God's approval and ask yourself, how does he view me rather than how people view Worries about the future steal joy, right? Those are killers. You could name a couple of them of yourself. What kills your joy? What shifts your mindset from Christ to the things that cannot bring joy? But what would build joy 
is basically two things that Scripture over and over tells us. Number one, saturate your mind on Scripture. Saturate your mind where you can find Christ. Look for him in the Scripture and be in awe of him. Now, I want to challenge you this week. It's a little bit more than sitting in another place. Pick a place and pick a time. Pick an hour of your day or just an hour in a week, a week and saturate your mind with Christ. And just start thinking about Christ. What can you think? This is eternal God, mighty God, holy, wise, powerful, good, merciful Christ. Can you count in a span of an hour everything he is? And you'll see your joy will spring. You know, we could rejoice always because our salvation is in Christ. And when you think about this, your joy just springs up. Luke 10, 20 says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your name are recorded in heaven. That is a joy. In all these things, we understand that, that Christ is sufficient. We can rejoice always because we believe God's promises are given to us through Christ. That is because of Christ we could rejoice. Like disciples, they were beaten, beaten, and, said, and forbidden to speak the name of Jesus. And they went out rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of suffering this grace for the name of Jesus. Now you could think about this. Matthew 5, 11, 12 says that you could be thinking of Christ and thinking of blessings of Christ even in time of suffering. Blessings are, blessings are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus said. We rejoice always knowing that God's working in us and he's working for good. We could rejoice always knowing that his gifts and call are irrevocable, and nothing could change that. It's amazing. When you saturate your mind on Christ, you will become joyful. Do you experience that often? And the second thing is sing. First, to saturate your mind in the spirit, marinate it. Try to embrace Christ from the scripture, but then sing. Sing. How many times when you had a good day at your work and you come home whistling? Maybe you don't know how to whistle. Maybe you're just singing your favorite worship song. You just sing. You see these people are driving, you know, across the street and they're just loud in their cars and they're singing. They're joyful about something. Something fills their heart that they're rejoicing. Now, it is true that when good things happen to you, you will sing. So singing is the reflection of joy. You're rejoicing and you're singing because you already have joy. Zephaniah 3.17 that says that God does that. It says that the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will make, take greatly, great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing or with loud singing, it says. But it's also true that singing produces joy. Singing produces joy. When you start singing, it affects your soul. When you start 
putting the words of Christ, the words eternal gospel in the song. It gives you wings. Some, someone says song is the wing for my soul. It helped me fly. The great composer Joseph Haydn was one asked why his church music was so cheerful. Now look at, at, at our Christian music. It just dawned on me that a lot of our Christian music are just very sad. Very sad. We sing it in a minor key. There's not enough joy. But he said, he replied, when I think about God, my heart is so full of joy that the notes dance and leap, as it were, from my pen. And since God has given me a cheerful heart, it will be poured on me that I serve him with a cheerful spirit. God wants us to set our mind on Christ, saturate ourselves with scripture, and start singing so that we would produce the true worship Enjoy. Do you enjoy God? Are you enjoying God? Challenge to us, enjoy Christ. Our ongoing worship to God must flow from the attitudes of joy, but the second attitude is attitude of prayer. Now, why would you call prayer an attitude? We think about the prayer mostly about as an activity, right? I want to challenge that. When you go to prayer, you think about activity, speaking words, and doing some thinking, right? And when the thinking is gone and the words are gone, you just get up and that's all you have prayed. And that is true. Prayer is, is a communication with God. It is a talk to God. It is a talk with God. By prayer, we directly connect our souls to God the Father. Prayer cuts the chase through the fog of the earth and through the army of stars, brings up right to the throne of grace where Christ is. It is true. Prayer is God's invented mechanism of bringing heaven down to earth. It's where we could relate to Christ, to God the Father. When we are in the midst of the problem, all of a sudden, when we pray, we could feel his presence. You know what I'm talking about? Prayer. Every Christian's, Christian knows what the prayer is. That prayer is more than that. Prayer is more than just an activity. It is easy to do the activity. It, or I would say it's easier. Pharisees did it well. They prayed everywhere. And they prayed hours. But if you think about prayer as a sphere where you enter into the presence of God, and if God is always present in your life, then you're always in a mode of prayer. Always. This command says, pray without ceasing. He's talking about praying, talking to God, but he's talking more than that. It's when you enter into a place where pride is abandoned, hope is lifted, and supplications are made, where the place is where God is. And when you put your mind on God at all times, and he's always with you, and he's walking with you, and he's sitting with you, when you meet a new person, he's there. When you meet a problem, he's there. When you meet a blessing, he's there. And you, were, you are in the mode of prayer or in the mode of presence of God. 
you are able to pray without ceasing. The word without ceasing means without interruption, without intervention. Like how Tory is evangelist of early 1900s, he says, how little time the average Christian spends in prayer. We're too busy to pray, and so we're too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. The power of God is lacking in our lives and in our works. And it's not just because we don't have a set time of prayer. I'm all for it. Every morning, start yourself with prayer, for sure. When you eat, pray. When you go to bed, pray. Daniel prayed three times a day, and that was a good practice. But what we're talking about here is the mode and the sphere of prayer that is constantly with you because God is there. In other words, we could say prayer is the product of constant awareness of God's presence. Prayer is the product of our constant awareness of God's presence. Where he's not with you, he's always with you. Now, there's a picture in Old Testament of prayer. Remember the picture in the temple or in the tabernacle? There was a censer. Censer that the priests have to put some perfume or incense so that it was constantly burning to God. That picture represents the prayer. Prayer of the high priest or prayer of priests, prayer of saint people to God that are constantly going before God that we understand that we're constantly in God's presence and we constantly need his help. And the fact that it does represent in two, in two passages of Scripture, in Revelation 5, 8 says this, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayer of saints. Psalm 141, 2 says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. It's a constant representation of that we pray and we're in dependence of God because we need Him at all times, and yet He's always there. He's always there. It is an attitude of God's consciousness and God's surrender that we carry with us at all times. Every waking moment is to be lived in the awareness that God is with us and is actively involved and engaged in our thoughts and actions. Now, it's been told about Spurgeon that he could burst in prayer in the middle of the conversation. You know, I started practicing that, and it, it looks weird. Sometimes I talk to my wife, and all of a sudden, thought come into my mind, and I just start praying to God. It looks weird for us to start talking to God instead of talking to people. And we understand that we need to shift our focus, but in the presence of God, I'll give you an example. For instance, in our family, we have a competition of words or talk. So I have my wife and I have my daughter, and both love to talk to me, and I love to talk to them as well. But sometimes when we're driving in the car and my baby daughter is in the, at the back of the, uh, in the car seat, we talk to my wife for maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then I see in the mirror that her hand is up. And she's like sighing, like, ah. So what happened, sweetie? And she said, well, I've been waiting for my time to talk because you've been talking to mama. And I understand I can't talk to both. I could only talk to one person at the time. But I also understand that I have awareness now that she's there. 
Instead, she wants to talk. So when we're talking about the activity, yes, we cannot talk to God 24-7, standing on our knees and praying. But what we do, we have an awareness of God in every situation that He is there. And that we could reach to Him at every moment. That we need, don't need an appointment. That we don't need to cut through the chase. We, we just go there. We just go there. The awareness of unceasing prayer of, of God, it is the unceasing prayer. It is the sensible living in the presence of God. Unceasing prayer, in other words, is a sensible living in the presence of God. Like a dog. Anybody have a dog here? You know, when you go out your house, it seems to me that if I could read dog's mind, anything, the only thing on his mind or mine is that when is my master coming home? That is all. That, that's all. That's the only thought. He's always in constant presence of the thought that there is his master and that is all. Nothing else matters. In this sense, we are like that. God is always with us. He's always there. He's our master. And we're unceasingly communicating with him, whether through talking or just through the conscious understanding that he is there. When we understand that we are in God's presence at all time, prayer becomes natural. Met someone at the store, you immediately analyze what is he standing with God and you pray. When something bad happens to you, you immediately go to your master and say, Lord, help me. When something bad happens in the world, you start praying for those people. When something good happens, you immediately burst in praise. That's what he's talking about. Enter in the sphere of the presence of God. And what would happen? When you would do that, you would pray more often. You would definitely pray more often. You would seek the Lord's faith. You would seek the Lord's strength. For you understand that you don't have one. You would seek his face continuously. And you would pray for every occasion. Everything that happens, it would be saturated with prayer. And it's interesting that we are so addicted to our phones and our text messages and our, you know, notification, whatever. I have to constantly turn off the phone so that it doesn't disturb me. It just, it's just a magnet. It drives me there because I attach to it. I'm constant present in constant presence of my phone. And it's sad to say that we're more aware of our phones than we're more aware of our God. Ceaseless praying. So we conclude that prayer without ceasing is to have an attitude of dependence and nearness of God. And as you will seek God's face in prayer, you will become more and more obedient to this command. The third thing is the attitude of gratitude. Spurgeon said, when joy and prayer are married, the firstborn child is gratitude. When joy in God for what we have, we enjoy God for what we have, and we pray to him more so that we'll have 
more. These three attitudes represent the life of true Christians and are an ornament of grace to every believer's neck. Wear them, every one of you, for glory and for beauty. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Now we're out of time. I just want to mention that when God says in everything give thanks, it doesn't mean that we have to receive all things and praise it for all things. If something bad happened to you, if you have a problem, if you have an illness, or you have rebellious children, it doesn't mean that you have to say, God, I praise you for my rebellious child. Because the Bible says it, you don't praise for everything. It says in everything. Makes whole different sense. You praise in every situation, not for every situation. You praise God for who he is, but you pray in everything that happens to you. Everything that happens to you is designed by God, but you have to be grateful that in everything God takes care of you, that God is sovereign, that God is good, and that God is near. And the word gray, the word give thanks is just really reflection of grace. When God gives you grace, you reflect in thanksgiving. It's the very same word, eucharisteo, meaning to do good in return. As you receive grace, you give grace in everything, meaning at every situation. In every situation, there's no exception, no times when you say, well, this is bad, this is not good, this is sad, and I won't give you praise. No, in everything. Not for everything, but in everything. And we understand that it's hard. How can we do in everything, praise God? Oh, by meditating on God, who He is and what He has done. How can I become a habitual, thankful person? By meditating on God's sovereignty that He allows things to happen. There's nothing happens without His control. And yet God is good in all these things and He wants to produce something good and that He's near and He didn't abandon us. What will kill the gratitude for us, it's a bad theology. When we start thinking about God in a wrong way. I like how Paul David Tripp wrote, wrote in his book, book Awe, many of you probably read it. He said, I'm about to hurt your feelings. If right now you're complaining about something, you're not complaining because you have lack of resources problem, you have location problem, you have situation problem, or you're suffering problem, or because you have people's problem, or you're fearless problem, or marriage problem, or because parents' problem, or church problem, or life difficulties problem. This is not why you're complaining. This is not why you're ungrateful. Sure, you may deal with difficulties in one or more of these areas, but they are not the cause of your grumbling. Your problem is rooted at the deeper level. And here's the bottom line. We complain because we have an awe problem. We have forgot who God is. We have a problem of seeing God for who He is. So every spoken complaint, every murmur of grumbling is deep theological. Our problem is not that we live in a broken world, but that we have a broken worldview of God. Is God good? Is He in control? Does God need your help in anything? Will God do as He promised? That's what we're dealing with. 
This is our problem. Problem of saturating our mind on God and have a proper theology of God. And it's often the problem that we are prideful. We don't think that God cares. We don't think that God controls all things. Saturate your mind with God. Our worship suffers if we have a joyless, prayerless, and thankless life. We'll lose joy because we'll lose the sight of God. We'll lose prayer because we'll lose the sense of God's presence. We'll lose gratitude because we'll lose sense of awe before God. On the other hand, if we increase our appreciation of God, if we start trusting Him for who He is, we will increase in thanksgiving. And thanksgiving will lead us to a much more prayerful life because it will bring us to the awareness of God. And when we are aware of our dependence on God, we will pray more. And subsequently, our conversation with the Blessed One will bring joy. We just have to try it. We just have to be amazed at God. We just have to praise Him. And not by feelings, whether you feel it or not. Change your mind. Worship brings joy. Father, we pray that you bless us to do just that. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And in everything, give thanks. And the possibility is immense because we are in Christ Jesus. What could stop us? Unbelief, sin, when we are saturated with something else, when we start thinking about ourselves highly than we are, and we forget who you are. Lord, lead us to a proper worship. Bless us with these attitudes, joy, prayer, and thanksgiving. In Christ's name we pray, amen.